and hear God's word. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. This is something which uh, encourages us every day. We thank you that we are able to open your word and read it in the common tongue. We thank you that we're able to read it freely in worship. We thank you that we're able to preach and listen to sermons based upon it. We ask you, O God, that even as you did to the Christians at first, following Pentecost, so you might do now. And that is that you might fill us with the Spirit so that we might not only have preaching, but that we might have faith through hearing. And a boldness which follows. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we are going on with uh, what is this triumphant conclusion of the Apostle Paul. He asked these series of questions, six questions. I, I, uh, I enumerated them last time. I won't do so uh, again. Uh, six questions by which he answers four objections. I think that's the best way uh, to look at it. The first, uh, the first two questions, which we looked at last time, answered the first two objections. The next two questions answer the third objection. That's where we find ourselves now. Uh, just as a brief review, the first two objections that Paul sought to overturn, objections, by the way, to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the fact that we, if we are in God's purpose, shall always be in God's purpose and will never fall away. The first objection is whether there is any power in the universe that is great enough uh, to overturn God's purpose. And the answer that he gives by way of rhetorical question is, if God is for us, who shall be against us or who can be against us? Uh, and, and, well, we looked at that in detail last time. I don't need to review. The, the second objection was whether God could ever go back on his love. Well, if God is for us, who could be against us? I grant that. But what if God being for us now should ever be against us? Is there ever a time... Or is there any conceivable scenario in which he might go back on his love? And the answer he gives is he who did, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? No, he will never go back on his love. He's already done the greatest thing. He will not fail to do anything less that will secure our salvation and our glory in the end. And so, yes, he will freely give us all things. He will give us all that is uh, conducive to our salvation. Everything that is in keeping with his great purpose. That doesn't mean he'll give us everything we want. That's not God's purpose. He's not there to, well, to answer our every request and to, uh, well, to make us happy all the time. But he is there to fulfill his own great purpose in us. And he will do everything. He will do all things that are conducive unto that great end. And so he will freely give us all things. All things that promote our salvation. All things that bring us to the place in the end where we shall stand with Christ. He the firstborn, we the many brethren. 
the first two objections being set aside to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. As stated in verses 29 through 30, he whom he foreknew, he also predestined, whom he predestined, he also called, whom he called, he also justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. The fullness of salvation is assured to us from beginning to end, from eternity unto eternity. These two objections being utterly demolished. No, there is no power that is great enough. No, God will never go back on his love. Such that these objections should never come back into our minds and they ought to be turned aside with relative ease. Now, before we come to the third objection, which we're dealing with uh, both in this sermon and the next, I want to bring out an important point, And that is the fact that we're dealing here with the doctrine of assurance. That should be no surprise. I've been I've been stating that ever since chapter eight, the beginning and even chapter five, chapters five and eight with chapters six and seven forming a parenthesis. Chapters 5 and 8 deal with the doctrine of assurance. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He states it in these emphatic ways. He says, now if you're justified, you ought to be sure. You should be certain. And we want to be able to say with Paul as he comes to this triumphant conclusion, as he says in verse 38, nearing the end, I am persuaded. You see, to say that is... Uh, the personal form or the personal statement of assurance. It isn't just the man saying, I believe, I believe in the doctrine of assurance. It's the man who is able personally to say, I am sure. I am persuaded. I am able to look, as Paul says, at all that is against me. And yes, I have many foes. There are many who are against the Christian. And still I conclude, my salvation is certain. It is certain because it is based on God's love. It is based on his purpose and his actions, and such things cannot fail, nor can they ever be opposed or overturned. And so the way to get assurance, you remember I said last time as we are nearing the end of chapter 8, I speak to the one uh, who still doubts, the doubting soul. The one who can look at all that Paul has said and still says, I'm not persuaded, I'm still not sure. I still have moments and seasons where I doubt my salvation. I doubt my standing with God. You'll see in this third objection, he's speaking to you directly. But in a broader way, I say to you by way of introduction, the way to get assurance is to get a hold of the doctrines. You have to understand things like the purpose of God from all eternity, the foreknowledge of God, the predestination of God. You have to look at what God was doing on the cross, as he says in verse 32. And you have to survey the wondrous cross, as John Wesley says. Or was it Isaac Walks? I, I can't remember. At any rate, you've got to survey it. You've got to stand there and contemplate it and wonder. And as you survey it, the thing that will occur to you is that he who did not spare his own son but did, delivered him up from, for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You've got to get a hold of the doctrines. You've got to get a hold of the teaching. You've got to do so in a way that's personal and practical so that you can affirm them for yourself. As a matter of your own personal salvation and standing with God. You've got to reason them out as Paul does. Uh, Take the objections one by one as they are thrust in your face by the enemy or even by your own heart. And learn what it is to turn them aside. Learn what it is, in other words, to exercise your faith. To persuade yourself. To be able to say, I'm persuaded. Do you remember what John says? I think this paints the picture very well. He says... 
If our hearts, if our hearts condemn us, this is First John chapter three verse twenty. If our hearts condemns condemns us, or if our hearts condemn us, excuse me, God is greater than our hearts. But if our hearts do not condemn us, we're able to go to Him in prayer and to ask uh, ask Him with the assurance that He gives, uh, He'll give us whatever we ask. That's basically a paraphrase of what John says. I, I think that's a good way of summarizing these two possibilities. You see, there's one kind of Christian whose heart condemns him. That's the man who lacks assurance. But there's another kind of Christian whose heart doesn't condemn him. That's the man full of faith. That's the man who has assurance. We want to be in verse 21, not verse 20. If our hearts do not condemn us. Let me read actually that verse just to get it uh, clear in our minds. What exactly does John say? First John chapter 3. Uh, verse 20, he says, if our, if, uh, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. That's the line I was looking for. I'm glad I took the time to turn there. If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. That's the essence of what Paul is describing in his own personal way, and it is precisely what he would have for us. Now, it, along these lines, I would emphasize the importance of, of reading the Bible. You say, how do I get this assurance? My answer is read the Bible. You've got to read the Bible as though God is speaking to you directly. And then, and then take these things to heart, work them out in your mind. And, and I tell you, you'll have a ready answer for the accusations, for the condemning heart, for the devil. That's also, I would add, a further use of the preaching. The preaching is like this. Uh, by the preaching, God is saying, I would persuade you of these things. I would have you be able to say of these truths, they are mine. Christ is mine, and thus I am persuaded along with Paul. It's God persuading you. I think that's a good way to look at the purpose of the preaching. And so we come to the third objection, namely, uh, which he deals with by these two questions in verses 33 and 34. And we're only going to begin to look at them today. I had it all worked out in one sermon, and I realized it's far too much. We've got, we've got to divide it. So we're, we're looking at this one objection under two sermons, and the first of which, or excuse me, the objection itself is, which we look at now in the first of two sermons is, can anyone overturn the verdict of God's? Can anyone overturn the verdict of God's? God's verdict with respect to us which he deals with by asking two questions, each of which he answers this time. Well, let's look at uh, the two questions first and then begin to consider the answer, uh, though we won't, we won't fully finish that point. The two questions are these. First, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Second, verse 34, who is he who condemns? It should be clear at once that these two questions belong in the same category, and he's, he's, he's answering by way of question the same objection once more, whether anyone can overturn God's verdict with respect to us. It's fascinating, as we begin with the questions, to notice the form in which he asks these two questions. Before we even consider the answers, the very phrasing itself is instructive. First, concerning question one, it would seem as with uh, the, the last two questions, God is for us, who can be against us, and how shall he not with him freely give us all things? It would seem, once again, he's asking a rhetorical question. That is a question which to ask it is to answer it. It would seem he's doing that. 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? First question. If it was rhetorical, the implied answer would be no one. And he might have just left it there and then went on and said, who is he who condemns? Again, with the implied answer, no one. But, uh, but that isn't what he's doing. That they are God's elect. That's another thing we should notice. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Again, we're looking just at the phrasing of the question. Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of God's elect. He's not saying, who shall bring a charge against mankind? If that were the question, well, we already answered that earlier in the service. Or those who are in Adam. The answer is the law. The law will bring a charge. The law is speaking to them. It's condemning them. It's holding them under guilt, under condemnation, under sin. That isn't what he asks here. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And to, to, to put the question in that form, again, we could say, is to answer it. Because once we realize that those about whom we're speaking are God's elect, causes us to realize, if we follow the teaching at all, that no charge can be brought against them. For those whom he foreknew, that is God's elect, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. There, there shall be no one. And there shall be no charge that shall be admitted against them. The phrasing itself supplies the answer, but it isn't a rhetorical question. As a matter of fact, he answers the question. And he answers the second question, who is he who condemns? Well, he answers that question as well. These might have been rhetorical questions, but they weren't. The fact that Paul takes the trouble to answer both of these questions, who shall bring a charge, who shall condemn, I think underscores the importance of the answers that he gives and of the doctrine that is at stake. What is the doctrine at stake in this question? Can anyone overturn the verdict of God? Well, it should be obvious. The doctrine at stake is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which, as you know, is the central truth of the epistle. It's Paul's great concern in writing the epistle to the Romans. It is the doctrine, let me stress, upon which our assurance depends. The man who is unsure of his standing with God is a man who has no assurance and who can have no assurance. Is it any surprise, therefore, to see that these two ideas are linked in the teaching of Rome, in the Council of Trent? Not only do they oppose the teaching of justification, but more strongly they oppose the doctrine of assurance. Any man who says, I'm paraphrasing, I don't know the exact language, but any man who says that he can be sure in this life of his salvation, let him be accursed. They pronounce an anathema. Now, they're saying that in response to the reformers who were saying that the man who uh, is just before God is precisely the man who can be and who ought to be sure. The man who says, I have assurance. I am persuaded. What I'm saying is that these two doctrines go together. And if you look at the doctrine of assurance, the very marrow of that doctrine is that of justification. You've got to understand what is involved in your justification, the certainty that it carries. And in speaking in this way, in asking these questions, who shall bring a charge, who is he who condemns, Paul is bringing us into a courtroom. He's raising once again the question of our judicial standing with God. Concerning the first question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect, we ought to ask if anyone would actually do this. Let's say the matter of justification is settled for now. We've been able to say, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
In other words, uh, the ideal form, as I've stated many times, uh, is that the believer is not only justified, but he knows it. He's justified and he knows it. And what Paul is saying is that still, this may at certain times be called into question. What he knows is being challenged. It's being questioned. There may be someone, Paul says, who comes along and brings a charge against him and thus questions whether God's justifying verdict was really justified, so to speak. Whether God was right in pronouncing upon this person the verdict of righteous, given that they are sinners. One thing we must realize once it's clear that we're in God's courtroom and we're considering whether a charge may be brought against God's elect is that a charge is something that must be done in terms of God's law. The substance of the charge is this, that the man in question is a lawbreaker or to put it in a slightly different form, more commonly, he is a sinner. He's broken God's law. That's what the one who is accusing is suggesting. That the one he is offended is God. Now, whether such a charge, whoever gives it, has any standing in God's court is precisely what we must consider. It should be perfectly clear to us that Paul is speaking very pastorally. Because this matches our experience exactly. In other words, what I'm saying is that Paul is not speaking merely hypothetically. But he is speaking in such a way that matches our experience as believers, even as believers who could say, I'm just and I know it. The matter of assurance is a personal concern, deals with this question very, very intimately, whether the question of our justification would ever be called into question. The whole question of our standing with God, once so clear and certain and seemingly settled in our minds, is once again called into question. That's what he's saying. What happened? Once seemingly so sure, now doubting. What happened? Well, it's, as Paul says, that someone came along and brought a charge. The form of the charge is something like this. Look at you. You claim to be a Christian. You say you're a child of God. You're a son of God. You've gloried in it for so long. You said that you were justified. But look at you now, a sinner. The charge especially comes at at times when we've fallen into sin, when the sense of sin and even the guilt of sin comes uh, in in a powerful way upon our hearts and our conscience. Perhaps it isn't a single sin, but it is a pattern of sin uh, which you've fallen into or that you've become aware of. And so you're convicted about it. Would a Christian ever act like that? What kind of Christian are you? Are you even a Christian at all? Can you really honestly claim to be a Christian given the sin? You see, it's sin that has called into question the believer's standing with God as one who is justified. And I think we can all admit how common this is. Our assurance, our certainty is assaulted in seasons where the darkness gathers about our souls, where the consciousness of sin is the greatest. We, we, we doubt that we are Christians because we sinned. And so what we imagine, Paul is saying, is that a charge has been admitted in God's courtroom, which overturns the verdict of justification. 
that even God himself is persuaded he was wrong in justifying us. Or perhaps we never were. Now, it's impossible to stress how wrong this line of thinking is. Because the shocking scandal of justification, the doctrine and the reality of justification, the shocking scandal, I mean, in terms of the eyes of the legalist, the legalist is the one who brings the charge. He says a Christian would never sin like that. God would never justify a man like that. The shocking scandal is that God justifies the ungodly. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter four, verse five, I think. And you've got to get a hold of that verse. If you haven't gotten that verse seared upon your heart, well, then you'll never have an answer to the charge. Let me say it again. God justifies whom? The ungodly. He does not justify the righteous. He justifies the ungodly sinners. Christ died for whom? For sinners. Even one as sinful as me, Paul says. I am what I am by the grace of God. You see, it's his own sinfulness that magnifies the very grace which saves him. Paul doesn't try to reason it out like this. You know, I'm one who's righteous. No, he says, and he owns the fact I'm a sinner. But I've been justified to to use another phrase. I, I, I think, no, this is chapter three. He says, freely by his grace. That's another phrase you've got to get a hold of. I've been justified how? Freely by his grace. Not by my works, not by my righteousness, but freely by his grace. God justifies the ungodly. Now, if we understood that, if we got a hold of that doctrine in the way men like Luther and Calvin did, we'd understand why they made so much of the doctrine of assurance. We'd understand why they had such great assurance and why they were such an annoyance to the Roman Catholic Church. On this very teaching. These were men who were sure. These were men who. Uh, or, or against whom you couldn't successfully bring the charge. If, if we had what they had. If we were able to lay hold of this doctrine like that. We would easily and swiftly brush aside. Every charge that was ever brought against us. And yet. Still, we find that we have many accusers in this regard. I still haven't answered the question. I spoke broadly of the legalist. The question is, is there anyone who actually does this? Would anyone actually bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is, there are many. There are many. The worst by far, the worst accuser, I mean, is ourselves. Now, in my reading, I found it was Satan who was typically pointed to, but I I disagree with that. I would say we are our own worst enemies in this regard. And, and I, I justify that by the language of John. He says, if our hearts condemn us, what's he saying? He's saying, we're accusing ourselves. We're bringing a charge against ourselves. We're saying, you know, a Christian would never act like that. And so we have no confidence before God. In contrast to the next verse, he says, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Well, why do we lack confidence? It's because we are the ones bringing the charge. Would a, Christian ever la- would a Christian ever act like that? Do you really suggest you're a son of God? Thank God, John says. God is greater than our hearts. Thank God. But still, I think we can all agree in saying that the heart goes on in its accusations. And when we find that we are lacking assurance, it's because of this process of introspection. But, of course, there are the accusations as well of others especially those in the world or the religious types, the legalists, always ready to say a Christian would never act like that. Finally, there is the craft and the power of Satan 
all of which is aimed at robbing the believer of his assurance, knowing, as he does, that he cannot overturn our salvation. He cannot rob us of our salvation. He cannot rob us of Christ. He can, and so often does, rob us of the enjoyment of all those things. And so he aims not at our justification, but of our certainty with respect to it. Do you understand the difference that I'm describing? He cannot overturn our justification, but he can make us doubt it. That's what he aims at. And so he makes the son of God, one who ought to be glorying in the privileges that he enjoys as a son of God. He makes him one who is weak and miserable and doubting. That's what Paul envisions. Who's bringing the charge? Well, it's ourselves or it's the world or it's the legalist or it's Satan. The question that we have is, are we going to listen and do we have an answer? Well, what about the second question, which he puts in a still more striking way? It's basically the same question. It, it concerns the same basic objection, which is, can anyone overturn the verdict of God? It concerns the same issue, namely the believer's justification or his standing with God. Again, Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It calls that into question. Is that really so? He who brings a charge is not so sure, even if that he is we ourselves. But here the one who brings a charge goes a step further. He actually renders a verdict. You see in verse 33, he's saying, I don't think this man's a Christian. He's a sinner. But here in verse, in verse 34, he's saying, the man is not a Christian. The man is actually condemned. I condemn him. Paul's question is, who is he who does this? Is any bold enough to do this given the teaching of the letter? I think that's a very helpful and useful way to ask the question. Let me say it again or ask it again. Is there anyone who is bold enough to condemn the believer? The sad answer is yes. Once again, there are many. And saddest by far is the fact that uh, the one who is the swiftest to do so is we ourselves. We are so quick to overturn and cast aside the rich truths that we've been considering here in all of these chapters for all of these months because of a single episode of sin. And when that happens, when we say about ourselves, I am not a Christian, I can't possibly be a Christian, I never was a Christian, look at me now, I'm a sinner. Do you realize what you're doing? What you're doing is to suggest that God's verdict was overturned by your own sin or something even worse than that. You are saying, in essence, that you've become the judge, that you are able in your uh, in your weak and pitiful state to render and to pass judgment upon yourself. Do you remember what Paul says in first Corinthians chapter four? He says, well, I'm not interested in any other man examining me. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It's the Lord who judges me. But you see, the whole fallacy here is that we begin to judge ourselves or we begin to listen to others. Maybe we aren't condemning ourselves, but someone else does. By the way, with respect to we condemning ourselves, that's exactly the language John uses. If our hearts, what? Not accuse us. That's verse 33, but verse 34. If our hearts condemn us, you are not justified there is condemnation now for you it is the total overturning the total reversal of the teaching of all of these great truths that we have considered well there are others 
even though I would say once again we are our chief accusers, we are our chief opponents in this, own, in this regard, there is also the devil. He is the accuser of the brethren. There is the world, there are the Pharisees, all of whom tell the Christian that he's no Christian, that God doesn't love him, that he was never justified, that there is now condemnation for him. What's the answer to this? Well, I've already suggested the answer is just to understand the nature of justification. If there was any doctrine worth knowing and studying and meditating, it is the doctrine of justification. You will never have assurance without it. You will never have an answer for your accusers and your condemners unless you, unless you know this. The, the truth is the man who knows the doctrine of justification is the man who would never entertain the questions. He would smile in the face of them. He would say, you know, that question is no relevance to me. Why do you ask it? He would easily turn it aside. To ask the question is to admit that one doesn't understand the doctrine. It is to admit that one is a legalist who hasn't the slightest clue what it means to say, God has justified us freely by his grace. That's a man who doesn't understand grace, nor does he understand the glory of justification, which is its gracious nature. But the truth is, if we are honest, and I'm admitting this about myself, those times you're sitting alone and you're full of fretful doubt and worry and anxiety about your own salvation, the truth is that we are easily preyed upon by such questions. Why? Because we don't understand the doctrine. We haven't taken it to heart. We haven't allowed it to persuade us in such a thoroughgoing way that we would... Never be troubled by such things. We don't understand. We might understand it in our minds, but not in our hearts. We don't have what I what I mean is a practical understanding. We have a theoretical, but not a practical understanding. You see, the man who has a practical understanding is the man who is sure. And if we look at Paul's answers, it will become still more clear the nature of this doctrine and the certainty that it carries. These triumphant assertions that the man who is sure is able to make along with Paul and that you should be able to make along with him in those moments of profound doubt and uncertainty and darkness. Here's the first answer. And I want you to notice its simplicity and, and also its power. It, it is God who justifies. Who shall bring a charge against God's life? It's God who justifies. Don't you hear in that an echo of what Paul was saying? Oh, I don't judge myself. I don't pass judgment on myself. It's the Lord who judges me. It's God who justifies me. Once again, what Paul is exploring and he's calling us to contemplate uh, is God's purpose and God's actions. He does not place the matter of our salvation nor our justification at our own feet or in our own hands. Jesus himself says, blessed are those who are poor, poor in spirit. The Christian is a man who has nothing who offers nothing to God. And yet God justifies him. He justifies him. Why? Because he foreknew him. And because he predestined him. And so on. We're looking at God's purpose and God's actions. What God did in all eternity. What he purposed there. What he did at the cross. What he's doing now. Verse 32. And then especially verse 34. As we look at next time. Now. The thought is this. If God has done it. If God has justified me. That settles it. At least it ought to. And I really should finish the sermon there. God has justified 
That's the end of the matter. But what we need to see is that God's purpose, which is the broader subject, God's purpose and the grace of his purpose is in saving sinners is especially clear in the matter of justification. There is no doctrine that sets forth the reality of this more clearly. We are in a courtroom and God is the judge. No one else. He alone has the right to condemn or justify. There is no one who sits upon that seat but him. There is no one greater than him. He's the judge. And if any should bring a charge in that setting, well, then it will be ruled out of court. For the verdict, which he alone has the right to give, has already been given. It's already been rendered. If God has justified us already, which he has if we're in Christ, then the charge will not stand. It will be thrown out. It will not stand a single moment. There is no way, in other words, to overturn the purpose of God because the purpose of God has already been accomplished. He willed to justify the sinner, and so he has. Is there anyone great enough? Is there anyone able to overturn the verdict? No. Why? Because it's God who sits in the judge's seat. He, it is God who justifies. Let's ask the question like this. What happens when God justifies us? I don't think I've answered that yet. Justification is God's judicial declaration. By that I just mean he's rendering a verdict as a judge. Not only that our sins are pardoned, but that in Christ he now regards us as righteous. He not only says, in Christ your sins are forgiven, but he says, in Christ you are righteous. I declare you to be one who is righteous. Now notice, It is God who says this about us. It is he who regards us thus. That's what John means when he says God is greater than our hearts. It doesn't matter in the final analysis what our hearts say about us or Satan or anyone else. Our hearts might say you are sinners. Satan might say you are sinners. The world might say it. What matters is not what any of they say. What matters is what God says about us. And if you are in Christ, the truth is there is no condemnation. The truth is you are justified freely. You are declared and considered as one who is righteous. And so God now regards the saints as righteous. It is God who justifies. What does it matter what others say? And the thing about any verdict in any courtroom is that it is final. You can't go back. There's no such thing as double jeopardy. And that is doubly true in God's courtroom. Because God is God for him to render a verdict means there's no appeal. No one is able to come along and challenge it no matter how great his claim is to the contrary. The verdict of justification is final. It is once for all. It is never to be overturned. It is never to be challenged. You see the time or the opportunity to bring bring a charge from let us say the prosecutor has passed. The verdict has been rendered. And that is the very essence of the doctrine of justification and the certainty that it brings, that it is final, that it is once for all, that it is never to be overturned, and it awaits nothing. We are not awaiting the confirmation of our justification on the last day. That is the fallacy of so many. No, he has rendered the verdict already. 
And if only we could grasp that, we should see why we should never question it again. And so imagine a man comes along and he objects. He brings a charge. The important thing for us to see is not the charge, but the verdict, God's verdict. It's not our own answer, since we may be the one bringing the charge. What matters is that we see that the charge has no standing whatsoever in God's court, not when God is the one who is justified or, or is the one who justifies and who has justified us already. So that to bring a charge against God's elect in that setting is something that's utterly meaningless. It's ridiculous. It is something which will be thrown out. In other words, for, for someone to come along and say of one who, about whom God has rendered the verdict just, righteous in my sight, now and forever. For someone to come along and say, yes, but this man is a sinner. What do you mean he's righteous? What do you mean he's just? For someone to do that does absolutely nothing to call into question the verdict of justification since A, it is God who justifies and B, God himself was pleased to justify the sinner freely by his grace in the first place. That is, as a sinner. What does it matter to say, well, this man is a sinner, as though God didn't know? What if you were to say, well, I realize that, that God justifies sinners freely by his grace. But don't you see that this man is still a sinner? You've justified him, justified him, and yet look at him now. He's still sinning. And God will say, that is precisely why I justified him freely by my grace in the first place. It never was about this man's works. It was always and only about my grace, which I was pleased, even from all eternity, to bestow upon him in the beloved, my own son. You see, to bring up sin in the matter of justification only confirms its nature as an act of God's grace. It doesn't call it into question. It confirms it. Am I suggesting we ought therefore to sin as though to confirm God's verdict? May it never be. May it never be. That's Paul's answer in Romans chapter 6 verse 1. Ought I to sin to make the verdict still more clear? May it never be. And yet... There is no way to present this doctrine without arising that suspicion and that scandal in the heart of the legalist. You're saying that sin makes clear the matter of justification. Well, I say, let that be your suspicion. Only let us be clear about this. The matter of justification is a matter of pure grace. It is not a matter of works, uh, nor of what man does or will do. Having said that, is it not clear what our position is, our standing if we are in Christ? Do you know what your standing is if you're a Christian? I mean, your judicial standing. Are you aware of the verdict that God has given? Or do you imagine that this is something that is always open to question? Are you always questioning it yourself? Are you allowing others to question it? The fact that you are just the fact that you've been made right with God. How? Freely by his grace. Still you go on sinning and yet still you are just. You're standing in his grace. You're not standing in your works. You're standing in, in his grace. 
We have so many accusers who are ready to suggest this man is not a Christian. He's not just. But how clearly the truth about us shines forth. That as Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ or having been justified, uh, we, we, have, uh, we have peace with God. That truth, how clearly that truth shines forth when we are able to say simply and yet triumphantly to our accusers, it is God who justifies. That's the first answer. As for the other answer, which we find in verse 34, well, we can safely leave that for another sermon. Amen. And let us now come to the table.